I shall read from Genesis, chapter 50, verses 12 to 26. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who'd gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brother Israelites, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they had embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Thank you, Rosemary, for reading that. Thank you for reading the extra verses. Um, There's no way I was going to be able to pad this out to over an hour if you'd just done that short bit there. (laughs) Welcome to the final part of this series on Joseph. Please keep your Bibles open at page 5455 and let us pray. Lord God, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. I'll start with a question. Who knows what happened on July the 21st this year at midnight? July the 21st at midnight this year? Is Ella Gurney here? She knew the answers last week. No? You miserable lot. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was finally released. Tim's looking nervous. 
Millions of people across the globe tucked into J.K. Rowling's final installment of the Harry Potter novels. The plot had remained a remarkably closely guarded secret. Rowling had made a public declaration that anyone with advanced information about the content of the last book should keep it to themselves in order to avoid spoiling the experience for other readers. To this end, Bloomsbury invested £10 million in an attempt to keep the book's content secure until the release date. I've read it, once Tamsin had finished it, obviously. And I suspect that if I was to give away the ending here and now, there'd be many of you who would string me up uh, because you're still waiting for your children, your friends, spouses, brothers, sisters, to finish it and finally hand it over. How stories end is very important. It's like when you have to record an important sports match and trying to watch it with all the excitement of not knowing the final score. Running home with your eyes shut, your fingers in your ears and humming. Desperately trying not to find out how the game finished. Would the final of the Rugby World Cup four years ago have been quite so exciting if you'd already seen the last minute of extra time drop goal from Johnny Wilkinson? Well, actually, I've got the video and yes, it is. <laughs> but apart from that, how stories end is important. But according to Lord Lloyd Webber, you can all stop listening now. His account of Joseph and his technicolor, amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat ended back in uh, chapter 46 with Jacob coming out of Egypt and Joseph came to meet him in his chariot of gold. But I want to show you that by missing the end of the story of Joseph's life, Lloyd Webber misses two very important points. These verses are important because they show us, first, that God is in control, and second, that we can trust God's promises. God is in control, and we can trust God's promises. So, God is in control. As we followed the story over the last four weeks, it's been a roller coaster ride for Joseph, for Joseph and the rest of the family. Jacob's family is at war with itself. It's threatened with extinction through fratricide, through famine, through carelessness about the next generation. Where exactly is God in all of this? Well, that's one reason why this last chapter is so crucial, because it brings to the surface something that's been bubbling under the surface all the way through. It's been implicit through all the narrative. Quietly and behind the scenes, God is working to bring about his plans and his purposes. So look at uh, verse 15 and picture the scene. Joseph's brothers are really edgy. Their father has died, and now they're terrified that Joseph will seek revenge for selling him to the hairy bunch of Ishmaelites. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So, in verses 17 and 18, follow some of the most impressive groveling you're ever likely to witness. Culminating in the brothers throwing themselves down before Joseph, saying, We are your slaves. You can see it, can't you? Typical of a bully without, when not surrounded by his henchmen. We are your slaves. We're on your side. Don't hurt me. Not the face, not the face. <laughs> but they needn't have worried. Joseph's response is the climax and summary of the whole account. Verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, 
the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Look at what Joseph doesn't say. He doesn't say, I was meant to come to Egypt to save many lives, but because of a momentary lapse in concentration from God's part, I had to come as a slave. Nor does he say, I was meant to come to Egypt to save many lives, but because you lot messed it up for him, I had to come as a slave. If there'd been a lapse of concentration from God, or if the brothers had messed up God's plan, then God would not have been all-powerful or all-knowing. No, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Two parties with two very different intentions are involved in the same event. While the brothers are acting with evil intentions, another plan was being worked out. What guarantees that God will achieve his loving, saving purposes for his people is the very character of God himself. And two truths stand out about God here. God is all-powerful, and God is all-knowing. As one of the commentators says, God is able to weave every event, every human decision freely made, into a wider purpose which is his. Let me just say that again. God is able to weave every event, every human decision freely made, into a wider purpose which is his. The posh word for this sovereignty, or in-controlness, is providence. And Joseph shows that he understands four things about God's providence. Firstly, providence is personal. God intended. God's involvement in our lives is intimate. It's not intermittent. So then, as Joseph says, don't be afraid. Secondly, providence is purposeful. God intended it for good. The things that happened to Joseph were not accidental. They were all part of God's design to bring about good ends. And there were lots of good ends that came from the life of Joseph. Which leads to the third point. Providence is all-embracing. God was not only working in Joseph's life, though he is the central character, he was working in the lives of everyone. As Steve showed us last week, in a foreshadowing of Christ's salvation through Joseph, God not only saved the Egyptians by storing food before the famine. Back in chapter 41, it says, And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. But last, we see that God's providence does involve human responsibility. You intended to harm me. The brothers can't say that they were carrying out or fulfilling God's plan. They had no such intention. God doesn't override our choices, and we are held accountable for them. So what? How does this apply to us in Parsons Green in 2007? Well, two things, both of which are equally equally true, and I think go hand in hand. First, we can embrace the fact that God is in control. It should be hugely comforting. But also, we need to remember that we're responsible for our actions and take this seriously in our lives and in our decisions. 
or else it's not a hugely insightful piece of application, but it's no less true or important. Now let's move on. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph said to his brother Israelites, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Okay. If you're anything like me, you read these verses and you think, right, that's interesting. Nice. Now what's in the fridge that needs eating? (laughs) At first glance, it's a slightly odd, macabre story. It's a little difficult to apply, a little difficult to work out what God is actually saying to us here today. So if you're anything like me, you get yourself off to the fridge. I didn't, unfortunately, at this instance have that option, so I had to look it up, and I cheated and used a commentary and some Bible notes. Well, it's not cheating, it's minimizing effort. So I look up Joseph in the best of all Old Testament commentaries, the New Testament, and I see in my reference Bible that he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. You don't need to turn to it here, but Hebrews 11, verse 22 says, By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. And the author of Hebrews is right. He does. Here, verses 24 and 25. So this can't just be Joseph being sentimental about death. This can't be the same as someone deciding they want their ashes sprinkled over the test ground at Lourdes or over the Lake District. If the author of the letter to the Hebrews think that it's the main thing worth commending Joseph for his faith over, then there must be something in him giving instructions about his bones. I started by saying how stories end is important, but this isn't the only Lloyd Webber story which ends too soon. Jesus Christ superstar ends three days too early at the crucifixion, completely missing the resurrection narrative that all four gospel writers seem to think is worth putting in. Gospel means good news, but the crucifixion without the resurrection isn't particularly good news. The resurrection is not only the end of the gospel accounts, it's the culmination of the gospel accounts. The reason they are gospels, the reason they are good news, the reason why Jesus Christ is more than just a superstar, is because the resurrection evidences the fact that the story about Jesus is the story about life. So by missing the resurrection in Jesus Christ's superstar, Lloyd Webber misses the point that the Gospels are about life. (laughs) Where did that little outburst come from? Um, How is the Gospels being about life relevant to this section of Genesis? This is a story about death. Look at it. Genesis and the story of Joseph end with a curious account um, about Joseph and his bones. Not so much a story about life then. Or is it? In verses 24 and 25, Joseph is remembering the promise that God made to Abraham back in chapter 12. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, and one in particular, the whole earth would be blessed. It's a promise that ultimately finds fulfillment in Jesus by bringing a rescue from sin and a judge, and rescue from sin and from judgment for the whole world, turning the curse of Genesis 3 into the blessing of the gospel in which death has lost its sting. But wrapped up in the blessing of a great nation was a place, 
God's place, the land of Canaan. Joseph, in verses 24 and 25, as Jacob had done in the previous chapter, demands that his remains be taken to the place that represents God's promise to them. So Joseph doesn't want his his bones taken to the family sarcophagus for sentimental reasons. He's not shielding himself from the horrible and stark reality of death, but trusting in God's promises and signing up for his rescue. For Joseph, it's all about location, 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 but only because of what the location represents. The location, Canaan, represents the promise that God made to Abraham. In these verses, Joseph is showing that despite the fact that he's dying in Egypt, he trusts God's promise. If you want an application for verses 19 to 21, if you want an example to follow, then look no further than verses 24 and 25. Joseph knows that God is in control, so he trusts God's promises. Joseph knows that he's responsible for his actions, so he gives instructions about his bones. Verses 24 and 25 are an open, public, and active declaration of his trust in God's promise. Where does Joseph want to be when he dies? In God's place, in the place of life. Where do you want to be when you die? Why not God's place, in the place of life? But who are you going to trust to get you there? Who better than a God who is sovereign, who is in control, and who keeps his promises? Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for the example of Joseph's life. Help us to see how in our lives you are in control and able to weave every event, every human decision freely made into your wider purpose. And thank you that as your people we can trust in your promises and look forward to eternal life in your place with and through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.